There was no evidence that Governor, that, that uh, Mr. Noriega was involved in drugs, no hard evidence until we indicted him. Does the NSA collect any type of data at all on millions or hundreds of millions of Americans? No, sir. It does not. Not wittingly. Have we ever tried to meddle in other countries' elections? Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system. Oh, we don't mess around other people's well, elections, yeah. podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sadie. And this podcast covers a number of topics uh, related to racketeering, such as organized crime, crony capitalists, corruption, etc. And I've got an absolutely fantastic guest on the show today. His name's Dr. Frederick Whitehurst. He's a former supervisory agent at the FBI Crime Lab. He exposed a number of scandals and became the first successful FBI whistleblower. Now he's the executive director of the National Whistleblower Center's Forensic Justice Project. Uh, welcome to the show. Howdy. <laughs> Howdy. Um, again, you know, not everybody listening is going to be completely uh, familiar with your background, but to say the least, mm-hmm. you exposed a litany of fraud and waste and abuse at the at the FBI, you actually reported, I believe, 237 times to the Inspector General of the Department of Justice. You actually filed a lawsuit against uh, former President Clinton. Um, and again, I'm 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 truncating this for for to keep everybody's attention span. <laughs> but yeah, most uh, I, I think most of your your work as far as whistleblowing um, was dedicated to the FBI Crime Lab. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you, you joined the FBI back in 1982, and then, yeah. you, and then mm-hmm. you joined the crime lab in 86. Did, right. did your whistleblowing efforts, did that did it start specifically when you joined the crime lab, or was it even from day one at, at the FBI? Well, day one at the FBI was the first time somebody tried to get me to commit fraud against the government. That was just time and attendance sheet. But um, for four years that I was out in the field, Brian, the, the minor fraud against the government, um, like, um, you know, travel voucher fraud, time and attendance fraud, that sort of thing, I, I got to the point where I said, well, I'm here after the bad guys, real bad guys. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, one of my classmates at the academy went down to Orlando and was there two days looking at it and walked into the old man's office and threw his got on the desk and his badge and said, I don't want to belong to this crooked organization, and left. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, after four years of watching that stuff out in the field, um, and other agents were upset about it, too. The, the, the It's criminal activities, what it amounts to. It's, um, anyhow, they yeah, turned these theft. actually... That's theft. Yeah, it's fraud. Yeah, well, it's what it is. It's yeah. stealing from our parents. Mm-hmm. But after four years of, of that, I went back to the lab. And um, it had nothing to do with issues I raised in the field because, you know, what I did was just try to, hey, don't get me involved in this stuff, okay? I'm not here to be an FBI agent. If you guys are going to steal, you're going to steal, but don't get me involved. Well, on the way back to the FBI lab, going across the U.S., I just made up my mind. Go ahead and and steal one pencil, one dime, um, anything from the FBI, and I'm going to take you apart. Hmm. 
And, of course, they assigned me to a guy at the crime lab um, who was not... Um, he was not concerned about such things. In fact, uh, um, he probably was complicit in a lot of it. But uh, uh, so I jumped into the fire out of the frying pan. <laughs> and uh, when I got to the lab, I, I, I found a dirty lab. I found broken equipment. I found a place without scientific protocols, no validation, things that are normal in a scientific laboratory. <laughs> and... Um, so instead of raising cane, what I did was I just started cleaning things. Right. I mean, literally just down on my hands and knees, cleaning floors, cleaning equipment, uh, going and acquiring other equipment. I got surplus equipment from National Institute of Health and National Cancer Society, our cancer uh, foundation, and just all over. I got it from the military and upgraded our equipment. And um, the... The issues that I saw, though, um, they came to a head in 1989 when I found myself in a trial where I knew the guy that was there with me, my partner, was not being up front with the court. And i just seen enough, and I knew nobody was going to do anything about it. Nobody, I raised issues with my colleagues and, and uh, my supervisors. And they all knew these things were going on. They said, management won't do anything about it. Well, the management wasn't my management. We had direction in the FBI to report fraud, waste, abuse, and corruption to the appropriate authority. And if you report it and that, that guy there doesn't do anything about it, then he's no longer appropriate. He defines himself as inappropriate. And um, so over a number of years i reported inside i got to the lab in 86 and i reported these issues inside and um, gradually up the ladder till i reached goodness gracious all the way to the director's office and to the senate judiciary committee and um of course if you if you do that sort of thing you pick up this trail of um of folks throwing spears at you but hey whatever there are American citizens who are whose, whose lives whose livelihood whose justice depends upon us doing our job as we swore to do it so anyhow in, in uh, it all came to a head and I guess the public found out about it during the OJ Simpson trial when all of a sudden I was pushed out into front of Brian Ross on primetime life and then I became Johnny Cochran's mystery witness, and then um, <laughs> uh, you know, the FBI sent me to the psychiatrist a few times because if you don't want to lie, you must be crazy. And, you know, it's one of the ways that they deal with whistleblowers is, um, is oh, well, you you got to have a problem. You're worried about we've just stolen a million bucks off of procurements and things like that. That's a problem. You're going to cause an issue. Okay. So, anyhow... Um, that's sort of a background to it. Yeah. And um, did write over 230 letters, 30, 30 letters to the uh, U.S. Department of Justice Inspector General over a five-year period of time. And in 1997, they conducted a, they wrote a report about an investigation that they conducted for about five years. I'll tell you it was two, but I know it was going on for five. And... Um, the FBI came out and admitted that they had committed these 40 sins. Uh, 
by that time, I'd hired a law firm of Cohen, Cohen, and Colapento in Washington, D.C., the finest law firm in this country. Huh. Um, whistleblower uh, lawyers, employment lawyers, completely without fear. They're just, I remember the first day, Brian, I'm walking down Florida Avenue, and Steve Cohn is walking with me. And we're trying to figure out strategy. And he says, well, the first thing we're going to do is sue President Clinton. <laughs> and I see. I, I, you know, I'm six foot two. And back then, I, I wasn't an old man. I, I was very physically fit. And I sat on the gutter. I was dizzy and nauseated. And he didn't even notice. And, and during that walk, that happened five times. And finally, Steve noted that. I was getting nauseated from the idea of turning against the system. Right. And I wasn't turning against the system. I was supporting the system. Right. You're, you're upholding the integrity the of the system. Yeah. But, you know, you're also going up against the Federal Bureau of Investigation and suing President William Clinton. Come on. <laughs> he didn't sexually harass me. Right. You know? <laughs> but what he didn't do was he didn't implement um, the Whistleblower Protection Act, which was federal law. Right. And he didn't implement it, the Department of Justice. It's amazing. The U.S. Department of Justice would not obey the law. Yeah. And so I didn't have Whistleblower Protection Act, um, what do you call it, uh, safety in place when I started. We did First Amendment, um, you know. It was a First Amendment our, argument that you had the right to, to speak your mind, I guess is what you're saying. That's right. Okay. And, uh, that and uh, so we sued Clinton to get him to put the the uh, law in place at the Department of Justice, and we sued the FBI um, for the retaliation they they took against me, and we sued the U.S. Department of Justice. Um, and Janet Reno, the Attorney General, and the FBI Director, <laughs> and. Um, you know, if you've been along down there, Brian, we might have sued you too. Okay? Yeah, probably. <laughs> you know, we sued a whole bunch of a whole bunch of government entities, and um, the Department of Justice. What I wanted from them was every file from every, any case that had been worked by any of the eleven people that I pointed a finger at. So but basically, it wasn't just me a, pointing a, a finger. A Freedom of Information Act, basically. Well, it was a Freedom of Information Act. Um, was what it amounted to, and what we wanted to know was who got hurt. And okay. I wasn't the only person raising the issues, by the way. Right. There were 30 FBI employees, I know at least, who said, now they didn't always agree with these being public. I didn't go public myself on purpose. Uh, the FBI ordered me to talk. They ordered me to talk to Brian Ross after Brian Ross wanted to talk to me. Huh. And I, I told my supervisor, my, my section chief, I said, I'm not talking to him. It's against regulations. And they said, the guy's up top. I want you to go talk to him. And so that's the first time the public saw me on national television. And then it just, I think I'd that, like to say it went up. I was going to say, I think that backfired as far as their strategy. Well, by that time, I was pretty distraught. And I think they thought once the cameras were pointed at me, I'd fall apart. Uh, okay. Um, yeah. And, okay. you know, frankly, I, I wanted to fall apart. You know, yeah, I wanted to fall apart, but um, but it almost uh, it almost back it basically backed you into a corner, I guess you could say. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, 
if you think there's an issue, you talk to the guy you have the issue with. And if he does that you can't agree, then you go to your next level and then the next level. And that's what I did for about six years. You know, the lab's filthy. We're finding explosives, but do we do know that? Do we know the explosive residues came from the evidence? You know. Yeah, um, if you don't mind, or, um, I, could, I, I would like to pipe in here because yeah. I remember part of your testimony. This was before the Senate. Um, oh, when yeah. when uh-huh. you you mentioned what you guys in the office referred to as black rain. So if you don't mind, yeah. just tell, tell tell the listeners a little bit about that, please. Well, the exhaust. The air being brought into the FBI building goes through filters, and it then goes through um, uh, air ducts, mm-hmm. and then it comes into your laboratory. And we didn't have positive pressure laboratories where we filtered stuff very well. And the black rain was composed of, well, the filters were made of old rag products. Imagine you're doing a fibers test and you match fibers from a crime scene piece of evidence and a, and a suspect evidence. Right. And you don't know why the fibers are in either place, but there they are. But you know what? They might have come from old rag product. Mm-hmm. And what happened was the FBI building was built around 1972, and inside those ducts were fiberglass. And the fiber, I mean, they didn't put it outside, they put it inside. Well, the fiberglass was falling apart. And so we had this stuff that was raining down on our equipment into the lab um, (laughs) 24-7. And the equipment had black dust on it. And I I looked at that black dust one time. I mean, you know, we were concerned that it might be lead particulate out of the the firing ranges that are at FBI headquarters. Instead, what it was was absolutely zillions of countless little tiny little fibers, the kind of stuff you look at in evidence. Mm-hmm. And also lead particulate. Oof. So we ended up calling that black rain. There was one particularly obnoxious client, I mean client, uh, a colleague, not me, <laughs> um, who was raising Kane about the health effects. Well, yeah, I, so, I, I think that's a fair point. <laughs> You're breathing well, that in. <laughs> you know, as a supervisory special agent, I went and investigated it. And there I found it. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. For all of those years since the Hoover building had been there, this old rag product had come through, and nobody knows what's in it. You know, when you finish with cloth um, product, you don't throw it away because you've got an environmental problem. You you have uh, jobbers come in that can use it for such things as filter systems. Mm-hmm. So anyhow, um, all those years, you've got this. You've got no idea when you find fibers then, but nobody said anything about it. I mean, once I found the stuff, I actually went out one day and got some scotch tape and did the tape thing on the table, looked at it under a microscope and thought, oh, boy, <laughs> this is this is disaster. Uh, it doesn't matter how you clean, you cannot say fibers came from in fiber evidence. So the microscopy unit, which was doing hairs also at the same time, microscopy unit, finding fibers, well, it really didn't mean anything. But... That's what the black rain was. It, it it was it covered the surface with what looked like soot. So, but and again, because you, you were you were the top bomb residue expert at the FBI. 
that it has to contaminate the evidence, correct? For a, a layman like me who has yeah. basically no scientific knowledge, that yeah. that has to basically invalidate all 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 evidence in that room. What you do when you're working in an environment that's continually you're analyzing one type of material, like a, a forensic drug lab, there's a background level of drugs. There just is. If you wipe uh, wipe surfaces in a forensic drug lab and look at it, you will find cocaine. In fact, I've testified to that. I sit on on the uh, witness bench in court, the witness stand in court, and I'll wipe wipe the counter in front of me and say, because of the kinds of folks that may have been here in the past, there's a good probability that on my hand right now is cocaine. Now, it might not be something that you would see. You wouldn't see, but it would be something that I, as a trace analyst, would detect and very possibly blow my instrument away because of the amount that was there and have to clean the instrument. Hmm. So if you don't know the background levels, and uh, unlike in the British forensic laboratories where they, they look for background levels, U.S. crime laboratories don't. There's no, I mean, I, I'm a forensic consultant, and I ask for that information. I want to see contamination studies. Nobody does it. Mm-hmm. So in the end of the day, you know, people are being accused of being in possession of something. You don't know whether it came from the crime lab or from the crime, mm-hmm. um, you know, from the evidence. The FBI is oh, the I only crime lab to have its scandals. All over the, all over the United States, yeah. sure. Um, one thing that you mentioned, in it, um, you mentioned about how one of your colleagues, you heard him testifying, and he was misleading. Um, and it, it kind of leads to um, one of the cases I kind of wanted to just briefly touch upon. I mean, you you were involved in many, you know, extremely high level cases, but you were mm-hmm. actually subpoenaed in the Oklahoma City bombing. Um, if you could again, just maybe, right. maybe tell listeners who aren't familiar with this just a little bit about why you were subpoenaed and, and what it all involved. The, um, the guy who was running the explosives investigation, was, uh, I felt like he was a good friend. Um, he, he was a good guy. He wasn't one of the, the ones that turned vicious. And he brought me his report one day, and he said, um, you know, if anybody will critique this, get it down, Fred, you will. And would you look at my report? Well, oh my gosh, it was it was terrible. <laughs> it was horrible. And um, I wish he hadn't given it to me. Right. I, I didn't go looking for these issues. Right. But, I mean, he's a good guy today. You know, I doubt he, he turned his back on me on the street. But, <laughs> you know, I'd hug him and, and greet him as a friend. But at the time, he kind of put me in this, oh, my gosh, now I've got all this what's called exculpatory information. So I wrote a very lengthy report on what was wrong with what was in the report. And then I'm stuck with this report. I mean, he asked me to critique it, but right. now as an FBI agent, I know there's a problem and this is going to be introduced into court. And I'm, so I wrote it up and it became what's referred to as exculpatory information. It could help the defense. And so next thing, um, I'm in a deposition and then I'm testifying in court. And um, um, that's where I was called. Interesting little anecdote. A number of the guys who were testified, who were going to testify for the prosecution as a result of my revelations ended up testifying for the defense out of the FBI. Mm-hmm. And someone, some wiseacre, decided that they were going to put us all together in the witness room. Well, you know, then they put some U.S. Marshals in there because they were afraid that we might... Um, 
uh, come to blows. We're going to come to blows. We're professional FBI agents, and I'm looking at guys whose careers are over with now. Right. You know, boom, they've been exposed, and I'm the guy that exposed them. And we just had conversations. We didn't talk about the case, but we had conversations there. And but it was a very awkward situation. Sure, <laughs> sure. But the uh, testimony was. Oh, you know, you can imagine the level of the stress. Right. Um, the, the problem you have is it's such a heinous crime, and there you're, you know, your inclination as a human being is is to pull a gun and shoot somebody through the eyes. But in reality, your inclination as an FBI agent is to see that justice is done. Exactly. You're the eyes and the ears, period. Exactly. Well, that's easy to say. Right. But you try telling the, the, the truth in Washington, D.C., and see what happens to you. Well, not only you that. You can't keep your I mean, job. But I, I, yeah. and I, I get the other side of it, too. You know, you, there's this bombing that kills so many people. And when, this, when yeah. these things happen, we want, exactly, like you're saying, we want, we want retribution. And we want yes. to get the people. Mm-hmm. But at the same mm-hmm. time, there, exactly, there has to be a certain sense of ethics. And this well, you is, would hope so. Right. And this is the thing that, that's always blowing my mind. Like I said, I'm ta- we're talking about the, the World Trade Center bombing, the Oklahoma City bombing, these high-level mm-hmm. cases that where mm-hmm. the government still has to cheat, even in these high-level cases, you can only imagine in the run-of-the-mill criminal case, you know, that doesn't have any sort of media attention, what can happen. Yeah. I can give you an example of that, Brian. Please. Back in the 80s, there was an FBI agent that gave false and misleading testimony 27 times in the hearing involving whether they were going to impeach a federal judge, a judge named Alcee Hastings, who's now, by the way, the senior member of Congressional Black Caucus. Right. But mm-hmm. um, that guy testified 27 times, and another agent um, took him to task about it and notified management. Management didn't do anything. When management do anything, then they weren't my managers anymore. Right. Well, I thought to myself, if this guy would lie in a trial of a federal judge, who else would he hurt? And so I'm still investigating, and this 30 years later, just about, I still collect information. I make it available to anybody who wants it. In fact, I was working on giving it away today to a, to a group up in New York. Um, but it turned out that he wasn't the only person given false and misleading information. Um, the FBI announced in 2005, April, that 26 of 28 FBI hair examiners had given false and misleading testimony in favor of the prosecution 95% of the time over a 30-year period of time. 26 of 28 hair examiners. And that was the FBI's... Um, Oh, what do you call it? Press release. Right. But that one guy who was such an aberrant drew attention to what was going. And um, we're talking 30-some people on death row, 14 who have already been executed. Right. Good golly. Yeah. Good golly. So if you see somebody going awry in a high-profile case, then you have to ask, what do they do in what we would consider low-profile cases. Mm-hmm. And no one's safe then. Yeah. And the astonishing thing is the Federal Bureau of Investigation has spent the last 30 years trying to cover this up, period. Absolutely. They have beat us silly trying to keep 
the world from knowing what they did. Right. And they continue that. They continue that. So, so, you know, as I told you before this started, I think that the FBI, in my opinion, is no longer a viable organization. We, we, should, quit. we should defund it, and we should take the good people that are there and put them into, into other government agencies and take everybody from a GS-15 up, which is management, and just say, thank you for your time, goodbye. So you got to give the right... Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, go ahead. That seems to be a consistent theme. That you say that for the for the vast majority of the rank and file really do conduct themselves in a pretty honorable manner. It, it, like I said, it's the real bureaucrats at the top who are just co- corrupting yeah. the whole organization. Yeah. So I guess one, one of the things I'm wondering, I mean, you, you basically had to sacrifice your career to, to, to expose this information. I guess you're saying that you don't, do you think that there's been any improvement at the FBI crime lab, or, or no? I saw vast changes, mm-hmm. and I've seen phenomenal changes. But I have begun to see lately the same crowd um, sneaking their way back into the lab really? to to make statements that are not supportable at all. They're not scientists. They have no business in a in a scientific laboratory. And we're beginning to see the same old thing. Hmm. And when you raise the issue, I, they're going to do the same thing. You know, they puff up their chest and they say, um, you know, with a balled up fist, I'm going to say what I want to say. And if you disagree with me, you can't work here. Right. It's one of my, my bosses told me one time, this is the FBI's football game. And if you don't want to carry the FBI's football to the FBI's goal, then you can't play football with them. Well, okay, but sometimes the FBI's wrong. And, Brian, honestly, I've watched this now for 30, since 1982. The FBI mode of operation is extremely vulnerable to directability, to being directed. These people, you know what drives them, and they're very directable. So I can... I can accuse you personally, and then I know somebody will step up to destroy you. Right. You know, it's like when a plane gets blown up. We want to say somebody of Arab, uh, um, you know, uh, family, genealogy, or whatever. Okay? Okay, an Arab fella did it. And then let's bend over backwards to make sure, but then... You get hit with these things like, no, maybe it was mechanical failure. Oh, it couldn't have been that. It had to be somebody from you know, some right. Arabic uh, terrorist group. Right. And by the way, any Arab is a terrorist. And all that kind of stuff goes on. And you can make the FBI, it's very easy to make the FBI do exactly what you want them to do to hurt somebody. And use them. They're fixers. And if there's an agenda, it's like the other day when they went out and reinvestigated uh, Judge Kavanaugh. They've already reinvestigated him. And you didn't believe him, so you send him back out. And why, if you don't, if you get the answer you want now, do you believe them? And it, it was obvious that, you, you know, they're very, very directable. They're above the law. They're not reviewable. They have no accountability um, and no oversight. If you live in a bunker, nobody can see whether your bunker's clean or not. And so you, you can, I mean, it, it's just, 
I'm an old man now, and I'm looking at, geez, these people are one of the weak spots in our national security, if not the weakest spot. Yeah, I mean, so, really, I mean yeah. there have been other FBI I mean, um, whistleblowers as well. When you go really into the, directly into the national security stuff, the, you're talking about mm-hmm. that. When you look into, like, Michael German, for example, you know, exploiting yes. all kinds of weaknesses as well. I mean, there's a lot of flaws there. So let, let me go into a slightly different topic. So okay. in other words, um, you, you're now, like I said, you're the executive director there at the Forensic Justice Project. And you were kind of mm-hmm. talking about how a lot of these so-called experts um, really didn't have any real expertise. Now, and in my opinion, that's not just a problem at the FBI. This is kind of a national issue. Um, and I don't want to, I don't want to completely belittle forensic science, but I think you would agree with me that there are, say, certain forms where there's really not much scientific um, basis to it, and there are other forms where you have scientific basis, basis to it, but there's the people who present themselves as experts really don't have the expertise. Is that a fair assessment, you'd say? Yes. You know, Brian, there's a book written by Gordon Clintworth. He's a professor emeritus at Duke, and it's uh, self-published, and the name of it is Giants, Crooks, and Jerks in Science. <laughs> Great it title. Is, it is the most, it's, um, let me see, I've got it in my lap right now, it's about 700 pages. It's the most important piece of scientific literature that I've read um, since I entered into science programs in 1966. And it's frightening, and it has nothing to do with forensic science. It has to do with people that forsake the truth, that don't look for it, that look for their own personal gain, to the harm of many, many people, many people. And, um, you know, Gordon is probably, if he ever heard this, and I, he heard me say that, um, <laughs> that he's uh, 150 years old, he'll probably chuckle about it. But, you know, he was a professor at Duke University for 52 years. Mm-hmm. And um, he extensively studied this issue, and he, and he documents all of it. You know, if I say something, I, there better be a foundation for right. it. Right. But Giants, Crooks, and Jerks in Science was an eye-opener for me. And what it did was it sort of took forensic science out of being the bad guy, the forensic science just being normal, just being... Uh, you know, the problem with forensic science is it exists in secret. And you can't see what the protocols are. You can't what's going on in the lab. The people that we oversight, have oversight on the labs are all other labs that are in forensic science. I mean, it's a, it's a, a paradigm that has never functioned. Right. Never. Not in science or any place else. You can't oversee yourself. It's got to be outside oversight. And, um, Whereas basically so, almost every crime lab essentially is run by an arm of the prosecution. They're, they're almost always, they're, there really isn't that real independence. No, no. And, you know, that's, that's something because in this country, I know a bunch of prosecutors and they're good people. They're ethical. Where I practice law, all of them are good people. And they believe that it is their job to seek justice, not to find conviction, but to seek justice. And 
you know, when I was at the FBI, when I'd raise an issue, everybody would, you know, they'd want to throw tomatoes at me. When I raise an issue, these these prosecutors that I work with, and most of them across the nation are, are very, oh, okay, let's see, are we doing something wrong? Okay, maybe we disagree with it, but we'd like to hear what you've got to say. And, you know, that is not understood in forensic crime labs. Forensic crime laboratories believe that they have to establish that information that establishes guilt, period. Right. And every case that I work on, and I've worked on hundreds of them, every case I work on, that data is interpreted to establish guilt, and it makes the work product extremely vulnerable to cross-examination, extremely vulnerable to ridicule. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's obvious, if this picture is supposed to look like that picture, and this picture is an absolute fingerprint of that thing, but the pictures just are a little different, what does that say? It says, you just ignored the differences, and you came in here as because you're trying to manipulate the trier effect, not educate the trier effect. Right. And it you know, becomes an obvious thing, and it's, well, it's too bad. And, and, and I think the real, the real danger with this is, um, you know, people refer to the CSI effect. Um, you know, there's so yeah. much television programming. I'm a fan of the show Dexter. You know, that he was supposed to be a, a bloodstained <laughs> spatter analysis. <laughs> you know, and there's all these different shows, and it, uh, it, it, it lends that credibility. So in, in many cases, uh, juries... First of all, if they don't get the forensic evidence, then they a lot of them really can't look past, you know, any other sort of evidence. And then when they receive forensic evidence, they have basically no level of skepticism at all. You know, it's akin, Brian, to what's happening with the um, the molestation of, of young children by um, a few Catholic priests. You know. I mean, it's the same sort of thing. We don't want to believe it's too horrendous. Let's put our head in the sand. Look at that guy sitting beside that defense attorney. You know, it's a, it all ends itself. It's, you know, it's uh, courts that are not willing to say, God, we've been making a mistake for 40 years. Right. Oh, my gosh. You mean I've actually, uh, I've actually put somebody in prison for you know, there's a very famous case, and it'll get a lot more famous in Washington, D.C. right now, where a man spent 33 years in prison. And an FBI hair examiner put him there. And a judge last December made the statement that this agent's testimony was based upon a foundation of lies and fabrications. And it's obvious the judge is he is furious right. that a human being was put in a cage for 33 years. Gary Nelson was a sweet, and he's a sweet guy now. He is a nice man. And he put up with 33 years in prison. Yeah. And he says, he says, I mean, put that in context. My wife and I sent him a computer. We should have sent him a boat anchor for a boat he doesn't have. Right. Because in 1985, Brian, there was nothing in the way. We didn't have personal laptop computers. Right. And when I said, you know, my email is whatever, and I said, you know, it's a, at AOL.com. Mm-hmm. So he typed in AT. Right. And you he, know? he's lost 
three decades. Completely, completely. And who knows what? Who knows what happened behind bars too? I mean, it's it's not just losing. I mean, well, you know, who you know, doggone well what happened. He survived. Right. He survived, but he survived the way you have to survive when right. you're incarcerated. Right. But you know that, um, and right now they're trying to retry this guy. Really? He can't even talk. He can't talk to the press. But that was an FBI hair examiner that took his life away. Mm. And there's no accountability for those folks that do that when a forensic examiner uh, cheats or whatever. They get to go away. Right. They don't go to prison. They don't, you know, they don't have to take all of their pay and somebody can get paid for the time they're in prison. They go away and just, okay, well, I'll do something else for a living. Right. The only one I've heard of going to prison was Annie Dukan up in Massachusetts, and she messed up. They were estimating about forty thousand cases became right. uh, suspect, right. and then they just they just stopped twenty one thousand prosecutions. Just you know, and she w- gets three that, years in prison. And with that case, to me, that one it it makes me so furious for multiple reasons. Not only. The fact that not everyone's going to be familiar with that case. She was, a, you know, a chemist in a drug lab up in Massachusetts. But guess what? Almost every piece of evidence that's submitted to a drug lab, guess what? They're drugs. They're real drugs. <laughs> you, know, you, right. you don't have to cheat the system. So that's right. She was falsifying right. evidence. I, I, I would bet that 99%, over 99% of the samples were actual yes. real drugs. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cop, well, cops know what cocaine looks like yeah. and what marijuana looks well, it's like. Not, it isn't even that. A law enforcement officer does not normally waste time on a case that's not there. Right. You know, there, there's there's stuff on the street that isn't what it is. You know, I had a, a relative who went uh, who got arrested for trying to sell powdered sugar as cocaine. But that's, you know? that is still even a crime, though. That's still a crime, though. <laughs> it is. It's um, counterfeit drugs. But, right. <laughs> I mean, the, the, but, the, the need to cheat, right. a lot of it is laziness, and I want to do three times more cases than anybody else, and, exactly. you know, and I want to be patted on the head. And, and I want my promotion. And they're really, right. <laughs> right. They're really sociopaths. And, you know, when I went to law school, I was in the FBI, but I went to law school in the 90s, 92 to 96, I started trying to look for um, information about forensic fraud. And back then, it, it just, you had to really dig. And then it started coming out of the woodwork. And now, if you type Google forensic fraud, yeah, there, um, there's just so many scandals. Oh, there's so many scandals. So many people have been exonerated from this stuff. Yep. What I yep. wonder is how many people are still in prison from the forensic fraud. Do you, do you have any idea? Like I have stats, well, um, over 500 well, people have been exonerated, um, due to, yes. um, forensic evidence. But do you have any idea of the scale of how many have been well, wrongfully? Let's put this in perspective. Let's put this in perspective. Every case that the FBI worked on hair analysis since 1985 had to be looked at. Right. That's 20,000 cases. And that's just hair uh, the analysis. 20, that's the, there's yeah, many, that's many, hair form, there's many forms. I know. Right. But guess what? The FBI trained every hair analyst in the United States. Right. That's 50 times 20,000. How many of those? Yeah. We don't have a national gross product to handle that many reinvestigations. We cannot do it. Right. So they and just cover we're putting it up. People, yes, we're putting people out there and not monitoring them. Um, the 
criminal defense bar has not. You don't get a Ph.D. in chemistry and then become a doggone attorney. People are just not stupid like I am, okay? <laughs> so, criminal, so attorneys out there, Brian, attorneys are looking at stuff and then they call it an unaddressable issue. It's just not their thing. Right. And I look at it and I, and I want to burn the paper, use it as toilet paper. Jeez, look at this mess, you know? And it's, we, we don't have a control over that industry like, you know, they're not, these people aren't licensed like doctors are. They're not reviewed. There's nothing, nothing at all. They're just free. And try the forensic scientist. I had a guy in the FBI who, who every day, all day long, he wanted to use racial slurs. And one of his colleagues said to the inspector general, Oh, he's not a, a serious bigot. He just hates everyone. Now, as often as he had to make those statements, that had to have worked into his rate, into his work product. Right. And so, how many people of African American or Arabic American or Spanish American people were convicted based upon his racial um, proclivities, if you will? Right. I mean, how many? And nobody did anything about it. Like I even wrote a paper about it, and, and nobody did anything about it at all. Nobody was they able to said, appeal a case off of that or anything? <laughs> no. How do you? How do you? Yeah. You put a man in a, in a cage, and then you say, okay, now fight your case. Hmm. And I, I watch what happens. It takes 25 to 30 years for somebody to get free. And the reason is, Somebody's career would be hurt if they went free, so you can't get out then. And then you get the next guy comes in has been trained by the guy whose career would get hurt. You can't exactly. get then. By the time you get to the third career, you see, you build up a, a point of complacency, and then you move forward. Yeah. 30 years, 33 years that Gary Nelson spent in prison. Wow. And Donald Eugene Gates, 28 years. Well, he's Sunday free, though, triple. right? Gates is free. Yes, okay. yeah. Well, at least there's it's one. Sunday, at least one guy Sunday here. Triple, yeah. Yeah. Sunday Tribble and Kirk Odom and the Huffington guy. And wow, wow. Mm-hmm. Just wow. Yeah. And no accountability whatsoever. And because they're in a bunker and the FBI's got the guns, literally, you're not allowed in there and you're not allowed to review what they're doing, no matter what they say. No matter what they say, you're not allowed in there. They are not transparent. And science in secret ceases to be science. So, So, oh, go ahead. I I was going to say, I mean, because I know that you do a lot of that work currently. You you use the Freedom of Information Mm -hmm. Act to try to, you try to resolve some of these cases. Um, Are you having much success with that? Or, or you know what I do? I, I, Gather information because I mean it's a it's a gather, heck, it's a heck of a difficult task. I, I recognize the difficulty. Right. <laughs> yes. I gather information and I provide it for nothing. You want it? Here's the literature. You know, if you're going to use this instrument, how or why are you using it that way? Here's all the literature. I'm sort of like an investigative reporter. Mm-hmm. I hear. Here's the facts. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a. Um, a huge scandal in this country from field test kits for drugs. Yep, and I'm familiar with that. So you, you, yes, you gather all that information you can, all the scientific literature, whatever, and anybody wants it, um, 
what we do with Forensic Justice Project is not pass judgment. We just say, here's the scientific literature behind this. Here's the practice behind this. Here are the number of times this has failed that we've been able to find. If that will help you, good. Because I can't personally go out, you know, I'm licensed to practice law in North Carolina. I can't personally go out all over the United States and try to help people. But what I can do is, what I'm doing with you right now, is with counsel I say, um, call me Mm -hmm. and, (laughs) and I will get off the phone when you decide you've heard enough. Right, and so right. that's um, it's noble work. I, I I wish I wish there were more people. To, and and there is that there are other organizations. There are a lot of other people. Yeah, yeah. Huh. there are other, but it it pales in comparison to the power, the overall structure of the DOJ and all the different state and that's county right. and all those different prosecutors and that whole apparatus. Um, but and you know they they get paid whether they do their job right or not. And in fact, I mean, what I'm reading between the lines is it looks like the most crooked ones, the ones who are willing to just play ball, those are the ones who get who get the promotions. Guys like yourself get pushed out the door. Yes, sir. Has have whistleblower protections improved much since since your day or or no? I think what the FBI did was to bastardize them. I mean, the, there's, a, there's a gentleman just sent in yesterday, Terry um, Albury, yeah. and um, the exemplary agent saw issues, um, didn't know what to do, didn't know where to present them, saw issues with racism in the FBI, as a wife and two young children at home, would not have destroyed his life, but he was just sentenced to four years in prison yesterday by, by a judge. And what that says to me is the FBI... Uh, there may be whistleblower protections, but the FBI has, and I'm saying this in quotes, implemented them in such a way that they're not, they're not functioning, not working. Because that man was not stupid. Right. He would have, if he thought there was a place, there is no appropriate authority within the U.S. Department of Justice to handle criminal activity within the U.S. Department of Justice. Right. There is none. Right. They're all compromised. There is none. And I don't know what the solution is. Mm-hmm. Um, accountability. How do you hold people, literally, Brian, with guns accountable? <laughs> you don't arrest them. I walked into my boss's own office one time when I was in the lab, and I just burst out into tears, and I said, I don't know what the hell to do. Mm-hmm. I said, you're my boss, but you're a crook, and I'm supposed to arrest you. But I can't arrest you, because nobody will take the case. <laughs> right. <Yeah. laughs> so what do you do? Yeah. What you do is you defund that organization. You say, you have reached the end. We're pl- we thank you for coming to the dance and thank you for the nice music. And now we don't need you because you're a more danger to this country in place than if we just get rid of you. And there is redundancy in our government. Right. And no matter where that redundancy is, I mean, um, you know, no matter... You're going to find human beings, and you're going to find people that do the things I saw. But the FBI right now is at the pinnacle of that. And if you just defund them, that would send a very clear message. And we don't need them, Brian. We really don't need them. You, you know, think... people at the FBI used to, used to say, you can't do this. What about our reputation? What would it do to the reputation? And I, what about the lives of the people that you're destroying? 
Because right. you're too doggone lazy to do your job, or you're a crook or a psychopath or whatever. No. We don't need them, and just defund them. Uh, and, and it's simple. Just gradually take the funding away. Y'all want to be psychopaths? Go out there where a law enforcement officer is going to arrest you. So you're saying so, leave most of their duty essentially to the states and, and, and cities? No, there are federal agencies out there, you know, that the FBI doesn't have to do drug investigation. We have a no. DEA. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the FBI That's doesn't one have I'm to for, do... You probably don't disagree with yeah. that. I'm for getting rid of that as well. Well, the DEA's got its own problems. They, you, they won't let you look in their laboratory at all. They will throw a case before they allow you to. But, you know, I think you send a clear message. There's accountability here. We still need you anymore. We'll make a uh, a uh, high-end um, condominiums out of J. Edgar Hoover building. And, you know, um, but, you know, that's sort of like <clears throat> the suggestion I had 20 years ago of let's create a National Criminal Defense Forensic Institute out of the, the Federal Public Defender's Office which is uh, financed, which is mandated by the Constitution. And let's just make, if we're an adversarial system, then let's get people, they don't need equipment, they don't even need a building. They just need to be hired to look at protocol. And no more funding for any crime lab anywhere, no, no more funding, government funding, um, if you're not going to allow us to look at what you're doing. There's just no funding. We had something, I guess, sort of akin to that. There was the National Commission, again, not the same thing, but the National Commission on Forensic Science. Um, basically a bunch of lawyers, public, but there were some scientists pub, there. Yeah. Um, public Council, public, uh, the, the President's Council on Advisors of Science and Technology. And Jeff Sessions came in and just wiped it out. Yeah. Just wiped it out. He's been pretty pretty open that he essentially not not questioning any anything to do with forensic science, right. even though he doesn't have a scientific background. And people like yourself, uh, you've what what a PhD from Duke University? Am, am I am I right on yeah, that? Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you again, you were the top bomb residue expert at the FBI. And anybody wants some interesting uh, video, they can they can watch him. Uh, kind of cross-examining you during your your testimony there. He he, he did not seem to uh, to. Oh, uh, that was too bad, and I felt bad for him because he he looked really bad there, and <laughs> I didn't do that. I didn't. I didn't. I knew where he was going, but I couldn't interrupt him. It wasn't a forum, and then you know it, it just um, and it happened. There was a, probably a staffer sitting behind him that had prepped him. Right. And she was probably she probably was still employed about five minutes after he walked out of the room. And who knew you that know, twenty I mean, years later he'd be the top lawman in the country? <laughs> well, is he the top lawman if he doesn't do what you know what right. president administration does? The president administration demonstrates the Trump effect. Okay, if you don't agree with me, you're fired. Now right. that's what happens at the FBI. The FBI is like that, and I think that's why they're recoiling in horror because their boss is now doing that. And they're doing anything they can at the FBI to unseat him. Mm. You know, I, I don't think he's appropriate. And this is not a political statement. This is a citizen statement. I don't think he's appropriate where he's at. However, um, the FBI is like, oh, my gosh, they're they're having to eat their own dust. Yeah. 
because that's the way they function. If you have somebody come out and make a statement in a big pro high profile case, you can be sure that he's not saying what he believes, he's saying what he's told to believe. Either say it my way or don't say it at all. And that's what I braced at and quite a number of my my fellow agents braced at and uh, if you watch the attrition rate, people leave the FBI because they're not going to be told to to violate ethical code. They're just not. And what does that leave? It leaves Mr. Comey and Mr. Stroke and people like that that are the problem running the organization. So I find it exciting that they're getting a taste of their own um, stew. <laughs> It, it, it's an interesting turnaround because, again, I've watched your testimony for years. You know, you always talked about how how proud that, that was to, to be at the FBI. And now I, I'm assuming this was not a quick transition. What do you mean? Just, I mean. Oh, it's always been. No, it's always been that way. No, but I mean, um, I'm just saying as far as your personal opinion. I mean, you were at one point so proud to be an FBI agent, and now you're at the Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious, yes. <laughs> Proudest moment of my life was when I crossed that badge and took that, I mean, crossed that stage and took that badge. Oh, my goodness gracious. I was, but I'll tell you a story I don't want to keep you about. I, I got this, I got this um, message from God, not on Facebook. Just after I graduated and I had my big old gun on my side and I had my badge and I was, you know, I went to, to dinner with my in-laws and my wife and my brother. And, man, was I proud. And I went in the little boys in the restroom. And when I started to um, to sit on the throne, my gun fell in the toilet. <laughs> okay, are you, you like this story? You don't want to hear that, did you, but Brian? <laughs> that was a message. I picked that thing up and it was dripping and somebody was saying to me from somewhere, get, get, get it on. No, you, you, you know what, <laughs> you know, uh, get over it, son. <laughs> and I should have, I should have realized that was the beginning of my, uh, my FBI adventure. Gun in the toilet. Now that I've said that to you and you're going to, you're going to publish it, I'll be hearing that story for the rest of my life, which is not going to be much longer, hopefully. <laughs> No, don't don't say that. Don't say that, man. No, I mean we we. I told you before, and I need to say it again. I, I really, this is just a genuine pleasure of mine. Like, I, I know your time's limited, um, you know, so we we really couldn't touch upon everything. There's so much to cover. No, I, I just wanted to thank you so much for coming on the show, obviously, but more importantly, thank you for all that you've done and what you still continue to do. It's a it's a uh, a necessity. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, you're not the only you're not the only brave whistleblower no, out there. there. There are many, many not of them, and like I say, we you know we, we do need to support them in every way we can. I guess uh, again, I know your time's limited, so I'm gonna have to wrap it up here. Okay. Um, so, but again, just want to thank you um, for coming on the show, and I, I just want to mm-hmm. thank everybody for listening here. Um, please spread this information, share it. Give it a five-star review. If, if you do want to support the podcast, really the best way to do it is go out there and grab a copy of my three-book series, Rackets. It's on the legalization of drugs and gambling and the decriminalization of prostitution. So again, thank you, everyone, and have a great day. It's a big club, and you ain't in it. I am concerned that the size of some of these institutions 
becomes so large that it does become difficult for us to um, to prosecute. You can have the license. Price is two hundred and fifty thousand dollars plus a monthly payment of five percent of the gross of all four hotels. Mr. Corleone.